Please put your hands together now, though, to welcome Mark Van Honecker and Petrox Saloni for our final conversation. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much indeed. Is that me or you? I'll sit very still. Thank you uh, very much uh, for coming. Uh, I have wanted to meet Mark for, for such a long time, so this is an absolute thrill uh, for me. It was seven years ago that Skyfaring, uh, his first book, came out. An absolutely beautiful book about the sky and flying and the Boeing 747. And uh, today I finally get to meet you to talk about your new book, which is also fantastic. A wonderful mix of travel and memoir, which is in a, a really a very original format, I think, for, for a book. Imagine a city, a pilot sees the world, and you join us in St. Gendelium. Well, some people join us from Plymouth or Penzance or London. Where, where have you been recently, and where are you going next? Uh, I just got back. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> just have to check for a golden ticket as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just got back from Sydney, actually, which is our, our, longest, our longest trip. Um, so we leave London. We have a 14-hour flight to Singapore. Uh, we're here 48 hours in Singapore. Uh, then we fly on to Sydney. Uh, where I had a chance to meet my old pen pal. Uh, when I was a kid, I had a pen pal named Emma uh, who lived in Sydney, and uh, this is only the second time I've met her. Um, so that's a great connection to the past, uh, and, then, and then came back uh, just in time for this. Uh, with another stop off in, in with Singapore, stop on, in Singapore on, the on the way back. back. Yeah. So you're away for, what, about a week? Yeah, nine days. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go next week? And next week I go to Delhi, uh, which is one of my favorite cities as well and, and features prominently in the book. Did you get any choice in, in where you go? We do. We, um, it's uh, everything in the airline industry is driven by seniority. Um, so uh, you know, you bid for the places you want to go, um, and when you want to go. Uh, most people don't want to work on weekends. Uh, most people don't want to go to Calgary in January. Um, so, <laughs> and so somewhere in between, uh, you get uh, you know a bit of a bit of choice as, as your uh, career goes on. And at the heart of this book are the relationships that you have with the places you go, and it's, it's unique, isn't it? I mean, no, no one has ever had quite this relationship with, with places before, because it's, it's so brief. You know, you're there for 24 hours, 48 hours, maybe occasionally 72 hours, but then you're there in these places again and again. I mean, I think uh, 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 Los Angeles you've been to sort of more than 30 times. Yeah, I, um, you know, we do have this incredible experience of cities. We, we go to them again and again, but never for very long, and um, and when we do go to them, we, we, we're not really there as a business traveler who might have meetings and, and sort of evening socializing to do. And we're not there as tourists who would come with a, with a, a list of sites they want to check off because they might never go to that city again. Uh, our work is done when we land, aside from resting for the flight home. Um, and so we have this uh, ability to, to develop a familiarity with, with cities, which is you know, superficial in some ways and, and very deep in other ways. Uh, the first time I went to Beijing, um, many years ago now, um, some of my colleagues were going up to the Great Wall, uh, which is just outside Beijing. And uh, I knew on that trip that I was already coming back to Beijing the next month. So I thought, actually, I'll, I'll do the Great Wall next month. And, and this week, I'll just, uh, this trip, I'll just walk, I'll just go for a walk through the city. And, um, you know, and that, I'll, you, know you, you, you find cafes you like, you find wa walks or runs you like, you find, you know, municipal swimming pools that are, that, that you can go to. Um, and so you have this kind of really unusual sense of cities and of so many cities. Um, and that's one of the, the strands I really wanted to capture in this book. 
Let's hear an extract from the book, which, which rather perfectly sort of sets up this, this sense of both what the book is and, and, and your life. Sure. So um, I was in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, um, I guess, three or four years ago. Um, and I was there with my colleagues. Uh, we went out and um, did some karaoke, as, <laughs> as airline crews tend to do all around the world. <laughs> Is that really a thing? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a big thing. Yeah, I'm terrible at it, but that's <laughs> kind of the point of karaoke, so I, I'm safe. Um, and then I got back to my hotel room, um, and uh, it was uh, sort of 1 in the morning in Abu Dhabi, but only, only 10 o'clock for me in, on UK time. So I was just looking out at the city um, and thinking that I would like to write about my experience of so many cities. And, um, and so this passage finds me in that hotel room. I have other more matter-of-fact reasons to write this book. Most pilots love their job and tend not to want to retire when the rules say we must. When my days and nights of flying are finished, I want to be able to remember all I can about the cities I saw. In addition, while years may remain before my retirement, I'd like to share now what I love best about many of these cities, not only with my family and friends, but with readers who might not travel as often, as far, or in as extraordinary a manner as a pilot does. And extraordinary is the right word. Long-haul airline pilots today are given an experience of cities that no one else in history has ever had. Two decades into my career, in an age in which it often seems that the urbanized future of our civilization is taking form directly before my eyes, my experience of cities as a pilot remains a deep source of fascination to me, one that's distinct from my love for flight itself. During a single flight, we may cross above dozens of cities, most memorably after dark. On some journeys, the lights of a sleeping and apparently silent settlement beneath us, one that if it doesn't have a major airport, we may not even be able to name without consulting our navigation charts, suggest Coleridge's ancient mariner passing like night from land to land, and the fragility and even the loneliness of what an observer arriving in our orbit might regard as only one more of the universe's strains of bioluminescence. On other flights, when I see a gathering of dim lights stitched into the far below floor of a Siberian or Nigerian or Iranian night. I'm struck instead by a sense of warmth, even intimacy, and by the possibility that I'm looking down on an evening much like the most peaceful ones of my childhood in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Then we descend. If we do so at daybreak, the returning light allows us to see how wilderness, farmland, inhospitably steep terrain, or thousands of miles of open ocean give way to our destination one of the largest cities in history, perhaps, which has grown through its own long centuries, and which now, on this latest of its mornings, and in the last 20 minutes of our journey, expands to fill the jet's windscreen with a map-like view of its awakening streets. After we land, we have the opportunity to repeat or deepen a set of urban experiences that are, again, like those of no one else. Our stays in cities, in so many cities, are typically short but frequent, carefully arranged around our legal responsibility to rest, but also freedom-giving and time-bending, as shallow a traveler's experience as we might sometimes be grateful for, or as fine-grained as our interests and the length of our downward stay might allow. The most remarkable effect of visiting cities in this manner, time and time again, year after year, is that each begins to take on a curious sense of familiarity. Indeed, in some cities, this familiarity is so powerful and deceptive that I've struggled to remind myself, I'm not from here, this city is not mine. Los Angeles, for example, is a place whose name first captured my imagination as a, as a child and that I longed to someday see. After I trained to fly the 747, I began to fly there regularly. Then for a few years, I did not. And when I returned for the first time after this gap, I asked myself how many times I'd flown there in total. Fifteen, perhaps? 
I checked my logbook and it was 39. Now it's more than 50, which, e which if each stay was 48 hours, some have been longer, means that I've spent more than three months in the city. Long enough that when I'm in LA waiting for a coffee or stuck in traffic, it's easy momentarily to imagine that I've always lived there. Then I fly away, and when I meet someone from Los Angeles elsewhere in the world, I may be excited to talk to them, in part because I feel that we have their well-named metropolis in common, until I catch myself. That feeling can't be right. I have it about too many cities for it to be true of any of them. Sao Paulo is another city I've visited more times than I can count without consulting my logbook. I've walked and run many miles in Ibirapuera Park. I've spent many hours people watching in the window seats of cafes and buffet restaurants near Avenida Paulista. I've saved up errands from home merely for the adventure of getting a watch strap replaced in a South American megalopolis. I visited the cathedral, the observation deck of the tower that resembles the Empire State Building, the food markets full of fruits and fish that are foreign to me, and the stunning, stunningly named railways terminal, La Cessant de Luz, Station of Light. In Sao Paulo, indeed, I'll often find myself overtaking tourists on staircases and crowded pavements as sure-footedly and half-exasperatedly as I might at home. And then on that same afternoon, perhaps I leave, and a few days later, I'll catch myself walking like that somewhere, someplace else. There's so much, there's so much there to talk about. I mean, just flying over these, these cities, these bright kind of bays of light, out amidst the darkness, with people living, living their lives, going about things absolutely as they do day in, day out on the ground, and you're just, just passing through their airspace. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is an extraordinary experience, the, the sight of cities from above, um, and especially at night. I, I often um, fly over my hometown, which is uh, Pittsfield, this small city in western Massachusetts that uh, features in, in the book as well. And um, it's an extraordinary thing to, to look down um, on just a handful of lights. It's a small city, 35,000 people, in a very, very rural part of New England, surrounded by forests, which are completely dark at night. And you just see a handful of lights, and of course, those mean the world to me. But um, to somebody else looking out the window, they would, they would be like any other. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And then arriving at the airport, getting, getting the sort of crew bus in, and, and I suppose sort of readjusting from the, the technical responsibility of the flight to, to this downtime that you've got that's neither holiday nor, nor work, but something in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I read a little bit of a book about going to Cape Town, which is you know, one of my favorite cities. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever been there who hasn't enjoyed their time there, and it, it's actually on the cover of the book. Uh, I was very, I, that wasn't my choice, but I was, I was very pleased with it. Um, and uh, you know, many people go there in the, the Southern Hemisphere summer, um, but of course we go there in the winter, in their winter as well, um, when there aren't many tourists around. And uh, you know, we land on the, we land and we park the plane and we get our bags and we go out to customs and immigration and, and we get on a little bus for just just for the air crew, and uh, we leave the airport on the highway and. You know, the first few miles, everybody on the highway is, is related to the airport in some way or another. They're, they're business travelers or workers. Or, um, but eventually, you end up on a, on a regular Cape Town highway, and it's you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, and it's raining. It's not a very nice day. And, and you look down from the bus into someone's vehicle, and you can see they're, they're turning the radio station or have sipping from their coffee. And it's just another morning in Cape Town. Um, um, and you know, as, as all the problems and joys of ordinary life will be there in a city that we, we may associate only with, with hol you know, holiday pleasures, mm. but in fact, it's a place that's going on like every other, and mm. you get these glimpses into it, um, which are 
you know, they, they're both profound and superficial at the same time. And that, that quality is something that I really wanted to, um, to capture in mm. the book. And you really have, I mean, how did the format of the book come about? Because it is this, this fascinating mix of, of travel writing and of memoir and of you. I mean, it's a very personal, very honest book. Yeah, so I, I grew up in, 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 in this place that I've been talking about, Pittsfield. Um, and in many ways, um, it seems like an ideal place um, from the outside. It's, it's, um, it's uh, surrounded by, by beautiful nature. Um, there's mountains and skiing and lakes. And, um, and yet, of course, the reality of growing up there is, you know, is as individual as everyone's family. Um, and you know, I had some challenges there growing up. Um, like many gay kids, it took me a while to become comfortable with, with who I am. Um, and I also had a speech impediment, which made it very difficult for me to, uh, to, uh, to say the American R, that hard R, um, uh, which uh, you know, makes you quite word-focused, actually, because you're kind of thinking ahead about which words are going to be more easily understood as a kid. Um, and then in parallel with that was this very, very um, deep fascination with travel and with airplanes. And, and those kind of two strands merged in the, in the idea that cities were places where you could, um, you could be yourself, where you could travel to, to, to escape whatever it was you wanted to escape. And of course, lots of kids feel that way um, in, in, a, in rural places all over the place, um, mm. whether it's Pittsfield or Cornwall, people dream of perhaps leaving when they're young and returning when they're, when they're older. And you had an illuminated globe. I did. Major Robert. I did. I had a childhood, I had a globe, you know, one of those blue globes that light, lights up. That was a really powerful, you know, that and my model airplanes were kind of my view of the, of the future. <laughs> um, and of course, it, you know, it, that future did come to pass. Uh, I did become a pilot and leave, and yet, um, and yet Pittsfield and, and the idea of home um, has become, you know, so central to me as, as I've gotten a little older. Um, and so this book is, is about traveling to the, most, uh, to the most distant places in the world and also about perhaps taking the long way home. Um, yeah, and, and, and it's full of real cities. But it's also about a kind of amalgam, a sort of imaginary city, the, the, the imagine of, of the title, a kind of place that you, yeah. can, you can escape to, which you did as a kid, but actually you still do sometimes. Yeah, the, um, the, the idea of, of, I'm a big fan of um, Italo Calvino's book, Invisible Cities. Uh, I have to stop quoting it in this book at some point. Um, <laughs> you know, when you, I always thought um, when you're a writer, if you quote, if you quote another writer, you're, that's a nice thing to do because you're, um, you know, you're getting their words out there, but in fact, you have to pay for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a lot sometimes. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and there's a fair use doctrine, um, which is in the US is more expensive. In the UK, it's really quite restrictive. I think it's five words sometimes. And above that, you have to get permission. So you have to really love a book to quote a lot from it because you're, um, but I did quote a lot from Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Cities, um, which uh, is a fictionalized account of uh, Marco Polo um, talking to Kublai Khan and describing um, 52 cities. Um, and at the end of it, you realize, it's, I'm not giving the plot away, really, the rest of the plot. Uh, at the end of it, you realize that they're all the same city, which is Venice. Um, and the idea is that uh, you know, a city is, is as unique as we each are. And um, our impressions of the same city um, are, are completely shaped by who we are. And so we would describe, we, we know a city um, as, uh, as an individual, um, mm. and yet somehow those impressions of a city form the city, mm. um, which is a really lovely idea in, um, in Calvino's book, and is also the sense a pilot might get once you've been to this many cities this many times. Mm. <laughs> um, Pittsfield, ironically, is the one city in the book that 
uh, doesn't have an airport that, that receives passenger flights. I think it's got a small, a small kind of private airport. Yeah, but where I did no, my first no uh, flying lessons. There are yeah, no scheduled yeah. flights into, no. into, not, not into yet, Pittsburgh. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> maybe, you'll, maybe you'll start them. But we do get, you know, we get, we get your, your family home, your, your, your parents, their separation. We get the, the teacher at school who, who mocks, mocks you because of that, that, that uh, speech issue. Um, we get the Berkshire, sorry, the Berkshire, <laughs> we might the Berkshires here. The Berkshire Athenaeum, the, the library. And we've heard lots of references this weekend to, to libraries. This was, a, this was a wonderful place for you to go and, 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 and f another place where you found the imaginary city. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, to, it's called the, we, we say Berkshire um, there, uh, Athenaeum. And I, I didn't understand that Athenaeums were a thing. I thought they were just, I thought we had the only one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought that, you know, whoever had founded that library in Pittsfield had some classical um, you know, uh, bent, and they um, they thought, let's call it the Athenaeum, let's name it after Athens and stuff. And then I realized lots of cities have Athenaeums. Um, but this was a very special library, uh, and it was very close to my high school. And at, at lunchtime, uh, when you were in your last two years of high school, you were allowed to leave the school to have lunch outside. So you could go to a fast food restaurant or a deli or something, um, or you could go to the library. Um, so I would sometimes go to the library and read Aviation Week, which was the... Uh, the sort of trade magazine of airlines. Um, Did anyone else read it, or were you? I think my dad. Right. My <laughs> family. Yeah. And my f my uh, my father's office was actually right across the street from our high school, so sometimes I would go and have lunch with him, um, and that was that was a, a very happy memory. Yeah. Um, he had this in his office. He had a. Um, he was actually he worked for the state government in in social services, and uh, he was the boss of that small office. And uh, but it had two or three floors of, of this building. And uh, he had a rubber plant, a, uh, which was growing. And at some point, they were renovating the building, and his his plant had reached the ceiling. So he was then going to move. He then was about to move to the floor above. So he had when they renovated, it, he had them leave a hole in the ceiling, <laughs> so so his plant could um, could grow through to the next floor. Um, and in, in my imagination, it was one, even one more floor beyond that. But I think it was just. Do you think it's still there? I think it's grown. I don't think it's still there. No, sadly <laughs> not. Yeah. Tell us about your dad, because uh, a, a big chunk of this book, and we'll hear you read a bit more of it in a moment, is, is, is based in and around Brazil. And that's because of your father, who, who, who went to work there. Yeah, my, my father had um, quite an interesting background. He was, he was born in Belgium. Uh, he became a Catholic priest um, and then lived in the Belgian Congo, as it was then called, um, and then uh, eventually moved to Brazil. And he lived in, in a series of large cities on the, on the coast of Brazil over throughout the 1960s. Um, and he, he wrote a kind of memoir just for his family. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't ever published. But he, he described these cities as, um, you know, he would, the, the chapters had these subtitles called like uh, City of the Bicycles or City of the 365 Churches, um, which is, uh, you know, kind of mimics how we speak of cities, you know, the city, um, City of Angels, City of Light, that kind of thing. And it's a format you've taken. Yeah, and so I took that format directly um, for this book. Uh, and then eventually, uh, my father decided to move to the United States, uh, where he met my mother. Um, he left his, uh, his previous vocation. Um, and uh, eventually, my parents decided to, to adopt a child. Uh, and my brother uh, was born in Brazil. So that's another, another strong tie to, to, uh, to Brazil. Um, and of course, now I go to Brazil almost every month. Mm. Um, and I fly over these places uh, where my father lived and where my brother was born. Um, and um, uh, 
that's uh, a remarkable connection we still have. There's a lovely story about Eduardo, who was a, well, is, I think he's still alive, an yes, elderly, he is, elderly yeah, priest yeah. Who's, who's in his 90s now, who worked uh, with your father, who tells you about the cultural shock they both encountered when they arrived from, from Belgium, from a, a cold, nebulous continent to this bright, luminous, tropical world. Yeah. Well, you can sort of imagine. But, but then I was thinking, well, hang on, that's, that's exactly what you'll do when you fly into Delhi next week or when you fly into Sao Paulo the following month or even when you fly into Sydney. I mean, that's a regular thing for you. It was a life-changing moment for your father. Yeah, yeah. He, um, uh, so he was sent, uh, at, at the time, the, the Belgian Catholic Church would send out groups of priests together who were trained in the language of the country they were going to. So a, a cohort of five or six priests went out in the 1960s and... Um, all of them left the church, all of them had families, uh, and one of them uh, is uh, still alive, this guy, Eduardo, um, and, um, and he actually arranged uh, my brother's adoption. Uh, so he's uh, like a, a godfather even more to my, to my brother. Um, and uh, yeah, so those, those connections are, yeah, are very strong. Yeah. yeah, and you revel in the shape of places, the design of places, the architecture of places. I mean, you write beautifully about Brasilia, the strange, really, and there's no other word for it, is it? Cap capital of Brazil, miles inland from the sea, in a country that's essentially based uh, around the coast. Uh, Brasilia is just an extraordinary city. Um, it's, uh, it, was, it was constructed in, in, in the middle of a savanna uh, at a time when there were no roads to the place where it was built. And uh, yeah, Brazil, I mean, Brazil is, is, a, is, a, is a country of coastal metropolises. Uh, I mean, Sao Paulo is a little bit inland, but, but basically all the rest ring the coastline. Um, and they had this idea that, uh, that to make Brazil a more integrated and perhaps fairer country, they should you know, stop looking to Europe and looking to the outside and build a capital right in the center. Um, they're not the only country that's done that, actually. Um, and then the result was Brasilia. But the extraordinary thing about Brasilia was that it was, there was a completely unrelated to it in 180 years beforehand. Uh, there was an uh, Italian priest uh, who had never been to Brazil um, named Don Bosco. And he had a dream about a city arising on the Brazilian savanna. And he was really precise about it. He, he listed the latitude uh, and longitude of it. He talked about its lake and, and all these other, other things. And then, unrelated, <laughs> as far as he knew, uh, 80 years later, this capital was built there. Uh, and my father went to, to Brasilia when it was being constructed. Um, and so I have these slides that he took, uh, rather than photographs, of these buildings that were you know, just, just skeletons of, of the buildings that would become this new capital. Um, so to go back to them um, 40 or 50 years later, um, af and after uh, he's no longer around, to, to, to walk in that city was, was, was a really a striking experience. And uh, the city looks, from above, it looks like an airplane. Um, you should uh, encourage you to go Google Brasilia at night. Um, actually, it's on the, the back of cover. It's not, it, it, is, of this, it is of Brasilia, um, but the better view is from above where you can see that it looks like a bird or, um, or a plane. Uh, and even the neighborhoods to the north and south are called the North Wing and the South Wing. Um, and uh, I think uh, Yuri Gagarin went there just after it was constructed. And he said, uh, he said, this is, he, said he had the, the experience was like, um, was like disembarking a plane on, onto another planet. Yeah. Um, and he would know, I guess, well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and free fruit from Brasilia. Yeah, they have this. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's, you know, it's obviously a very warm climate and, and very wet, and so there's there's uh, tropical fruit trees everywhere in the city that are in that are constantly, you know, offering fruit you can eat. And so there's a, there are, there are apps to say, oh well, the mangoes are great on this street today, and 
and then you can go and, or if you uh, if you have lemons on the street today, you can report that on the app. But yeah, it's um, that is not something that happens in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Read us another another extract, uh, and this is about another place in in Brazil. I mean, you 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 meditate elsewhere in the book about the fact there are a huge number of cities of one million, five million, ten million even that that no one flies to from Europe, and that and that most of us won't even have won't even have heard of. There are lots in China, but this is a this is a place a bit like that in in, in, in Brazil that's not so familiar. Yeah, I mean, wh one of the experiences that you have when you go to when you've gone to a city 30 or 40 times is you start to think, what are the places I can go from this city? So um, after having been to Rio many times, I, I asked somebody, you know, where should I go for a, a day trip from Rio? Which again highlights how extraordinary this experience of cities is that you could be tired of Rio <laughs> um, or want to go somewhere else from it. Um, not that I was ever tired of it, uh, but um, somebody recommended going to this city called Petropolis, uh, which is um, a bus ride, uh, a short bus ride north of Rio, and it is a, a city all its own. To reach the cool and fragrant air of the city of Petropolis, you must leave the Atlantic Ocean and Rio de Janeiro behind and take the highway that leads north to the interior. Rio is known from every postcard as a city of mountains. The nearby city of Petropolis is hardly known at all outside Brazil, but every Rio-bound pilot to whom you describe the city's location will know exactly where you mean because the mountains around Petropolis are higher than those of Rio. And so on aviation charts, they are shaded in more alarming patterns of colors. The poet Elizabeth Bishop, long after the last of her visits to her boyfriend in Pittsfield, lived in Petropolis with a woman named Lota and remarked on the clouds floating in and out of one's bedroom, a pilot's dream of a city there perhaps. And when Bishop described the mountains around Petropolis as highly impractical, it's as if she was thinking first of the aviators who must carefully weave around these hills on their way down to Rio. Reversing this journey on land, the road that leads up from the heat of Rio seems to know that no direct approach is possible. And so it makes wide arcs within the folds of the hills in order to climb to the city whose motto is Altiore Semper Petens, always seeking what is higher. From the rattling bus, I look across the two valleys, these V-shaped volumes of Brazilian sky, to catch sight of further stretches of the road we're on, and I can't conceive of any arrangement of curves and climbs that could possibly get us from here to there. Finally, we enter the city through a gateway on which is written Cidade Imperial and Petropolis. This is the imperial city and the city of Peter, of Pedro II, 1825 to 1891, the last of Brazil's emperors, who fell in love with the city's cool, clear air and made a kind of summer capital here. Deposed after 58 years, his line ended and a republic founded. The fate of Pedro II is nevertheless one that every emperor after Constantine must dream of. He is buried in a city that bears his name. Like many pilots, I was drawn to the city by alternative aeronautical royalty. Alberto Santos Dumont, whom many Brazilians consider to be the true father of the airplane, and who, in the age of pocket watches, worked with Louis Cartier to design the first wristwatch, so that he could check the time without lifting a hand from his airplane's controls, lived here. After his death, his heart, in the tradition of French kings, was removed from his body. Encased in a small golden sphere held by a winged figure, it stands in a glass box on a pedestal in a museum in Rio. Many of his other belongings are in his small home here in Petropolis. On this, my first trip to the city, my two colleagues and I are happy to explore the house of the great aviator. But I'll fall in love with something else here the Palacio de Cristal, the Crystal Palace, a glasshouse-like structure set in a small, lush park. The Palacio, which opened in 1884, is made of simple cast iron and long vertical panes. Each of its main walls is three panes high. 
There's not much else to the fossil, for some of its panes are fronted by curlicues, and each of the floor's brown tiles is decorated with sand-colored fleur-de-lis, and the corners of the structure are fattened with column-like adornments that echo the trunks of the trees outside. The inspiration for the Palacio was London's Crystal Palace. Its parts were made in France and then shipped to the Brazilian highlands, where in 1884, a grand ball celebrated its assembly. On Easter Sunday of 1888, around 100 enslaved persons of the metropolis were manumitted in the Palacio in an imperial ceremony that foreshadowed the abolition of slavery throughout the country. The building also served as an agricultural exhibition hall, a skating rink, and as a venue for the elegant dances of the city's summer society. Today, the Palacio's chandeliers, high in the stilled and delicately boxed portion of the city's air, and so many years after the music and voices of the Brazilian court, the last reflected by so many walls of glass, are bleached and bone-like in the thick tropical light. While a plaque outside describes the structure as, I apologize for my Portuguese here, uh, um marco que honra o mais elevados aspectos da alma petropolitana, a landmark that honors the highest aspects of the petropolitan soul. The otherwise sparse design of the Palacio has an unexpected detail, one that reminds the visitor that the balls once held here did not take place in the black and white realm suggested by old photographs. While most of its window panes are of ordinary clear glass, a few are blue. In the Palacio on the spring day, these panes seem to redouble the sky's color as it falls through them, forming richly marine-hued parallelograms that follow oblique angles on the carefully laid patterns of the tiled floor. As I walk slowly through the Palacio, it feels right to step over or around these because the color appears to be precious, perhaps, or because the eye naturally registers all such lowly blueness as water. The Palacio is one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. This calming effect is hard to explain since, aside from its chandeliers and a low, empty stage, it contains nothing. Perhaps it's only that its simple iron outline acts on the city's air like the frame of, photo of a photograph, sustaining a moment that might have been lost, though otherwise it is like any other. Whatever the reason, as I walk away from the Palacio, I look back and I know I won't ever forget it. This quiet place where blue shapes fall from the sky, touch down, and migrate with the grace of shadows. A volume that suspends and steadies us as if it were filled not with air, but with clear water. A palace of glass that's open to all, though nearly everyone in Peter's city is busy somewhere else. I'm, I'm intrigued, uh, having heard that again, that, that how, you, how you approach these trips. You know, do you, are, are you the sort of flaneur wandering around and finding things and then, and then researching them retrospectively, or do you go prime? with something that you want to see and something you've, you've investigated? Uh, well, most, mostly I, I tend to walk um, when I get to a city. I, 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 I just, I get up and I, and I walk, and when I'm tired of walking, I'll have coffee. <laughs> that's, my, that's my general plan. Um, and, you know, so many of the stories in this book come from those explorations, but of course, I didn't know which ones I was going to write about until after. Um, so then you end up going to repeat a walk you've already done in order to make notes that will allow you to you know, to correctly fact check mm. it and, and, and to capture perhaps other details. So sometimes there's a walk in the book, um, which is, you know, is in fact three or four walks, um, going back and again and again to make sure I've got everything right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, so it's a mix. Let's talk about San Francisco, because there's a very touching story and an unanswered story in the book about in San Francisco about uh, Henry. Uh, Henry is a, a family friend from back in, in Pittsfield who, who moved to San Francisco to 
to work in computers and for, for reasons, whatever his, his wife, life goes wrong, he gets into, into drugs and, and, and kind of disappears. And, and you've made it a sort of mission to, to search him out on those, on those trips that you make back there. Yes, this, this, is, uh, this guy, Henry, was, was a, you know, a good friend of, of, of my family and of our families that were close to mine. And he moved to California, like many people do, um, with you know, dreams of, of, of sunshine and, and the big city and, and, and a new life. Um, and uh, while he was there, he, um, uh, he met a woman who he was planning to marry. Uh, he'd got a great job in, in computers. And then, uh, for whatever reason, um, his life kind of fell apart. Um, and he had various psychiatric difficulties and, and drug-related um, difficulties. And, and eventually, he became homeless. Um, and uh, so various family members, um, well, friends from Pittsfield would fly out to San Francisco to, just to look for him, just to try to find him. Um, and that was, you know, it's, it's a 3,000-mile journey. It's, it's not something to take lightly. But, uh, you know, to me it symbolized, you know, this book is in many ways about the promise of cities um, and, and what they represent to young people. But, of course, um, Henry's story is an example of, of how that promise can lead you astray in some ways. I mean, if he had never left... I'm sure he would never have become homeless if he'd never left home because he, if he'd never left Pittsfield because there would have been a, you know, a support network of people who would have, who would have ensured that um, even in the worst case that there was, um, uh, you know, a, a, a support that would, that would allow him to avoid the worst outcomes that are possible in cities mm. more than in other places. Um, so it was important to me to include that story because it, it was, um, you know, for that reason, that, it, that it's an example of, I, I wanted to be clear-eyed about, about that promise of cities and, and, and what it can mean um, for different people. Yeah, and, and the streets aren't often paved with gold, despite no, the rumor no. believe. And then uh, my father was actually, not long before he died, he actually went out to San Francisco. He was the last person to go to look for him in that period. And he, he found him um, and, and spent a week with him and tried to get him into, treat, into treatment. Um, anyone with, that kind of, with experience in that will know that's not always easy. It didn't, didn't work in this case. Um, and then a month or two after that visit, my father passed away. Um, and then I had this experience where I was going to San Francisco, you know, every every six weeks, every eight weeks, um, and I could go look for him. Um, and yet I was never really there long enough to um, um, to make a difference. Um, I talk in the book about looking for him and not finding him eventually. Um, on a, a few occasions since, we have uh, been able to reach him, but, but not to help him. Um, and, you know, it's an example of, of another way in which uh, my attachment to these cities is, is, uh, has its shortcomings as well and its superficiality as well. If, if I lived in that city, I would be able to help him more as, as with his family. I mean, there's a very touching moment when you track him down to a, a psychiatric hospital in the north of the city and you, you go to see him. You take a box of cupcakes, I think. It was his birthday, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, he won't see you. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. guard won't let you leave the cakes. You can't stay because you, you've got to fly a yeah. plane back to London. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah. and you tell that story incredibly straight. There's no sort of sentimentality about it. It's just, it's, it's the nature of what, what you yeah, do. Yeah, there's enough sentimentality. I don't need to add any sentimentality to it. It's, it's full of, uh, it's full of, it's full of, uh, it's full of emotion. And, I, and, you know, many families have, you know, many families have experiences like that, or at least in their extended families. So it, it was important to me to, to, to put that in the book. And I don't know if you still go to San Francisco, do you? Um, I haven't been in about a year, but we're actually starting up again um, in, uh, in November, so. And will the search yeah, continue? I'll, I'll yeah, I'll try, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You write beautifully about what are quite mundane things. Uh, 
orbital ring roads, for example, <laughs> uh, uh, and signs. Now, I guess you can see the ring roads. Well, you see the ring roads from the sky on approach, and then you, you go down them in that crew bus. Signs interested me particularly where when, when, when you get a sort of first sign for a city, and that sort of, t I remember going from, you know, up to, uh, to Hel from Helston where I grew up, and the first moment you see on the A38 the sign for Plymouth and all the promise of <laughs> the theatre and the Dingles department store and everything else <laughs> that, that Plymouth, that there's a great department store in this book, by the way, as well, but, but all that held. And then later on going up the A303 and the first time you see the London sign and what, what that holds. And, uh, you know, you reflect on that with New York particularly, but other, other cities as well. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that's again um, borrowed slightly from uh, Italo Calvino. One of his uh, themes of cities is, is signs for cities, and you know he meditates on 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 what it is, on, on what a sign is that it um, it's really nothing. It's standing for something else, and yet is of course, you know, it's it's, it's an incredibly important thing because it helps you find that other thing. But the sign itself is nothing, um, and of course they're less now than they ever used to be because people are using um, sat nav. Um, you can almost imagine a world without yeah. signs for cities. But uh, you know, I d there's a chapter, there's a section about Los Angeles and about being outside the city, and you know, you see because Los Angeles is surrounded by so much desert and mountains, that the signs for Los Angeles start quite a ways out because there's nowhere else to sign um, until you get there. And so I like to imagine the, the sort of if you, if you imagine like a topographic chart with uh, you know that would show the way you know water would flow down a down a mountainside or, or through a valley or something. Um, to imagine that the signs around a city kind of form their own their own kind of chart of, of the city's gravity, um, mm. and and I think that's a, a nice way to think about them, especially if, if they're becoming a little more obsolete. Yeah, I think Americans do it better as well. We sort of lose our signs as you get closer to the place, but if you drive into a lot of American cities, there'll be a big sort of sign above the bridge saying Chicago or yeah, saying New York. Yeah. So but I mean, and New York is, a, is an interesting exception because now there are actually more signs for New York. But when I was growing up, um, New York was the People just called it the city. They didn't even have to specify which one. Um, it was a three-hour drive away from those three and a half hours. Um, and actually, Bos Boston should have been our city because that was the capital of the state. It was two hours instead of three hours. But if people said, oh, we're going to the city, nobody thought they meant Boston. <laughs> Everybody knew they meant New York. But for a long time, there really weren't signs for New York. Uh, it was kind of assumed that that if you were heading in this direction, that um, mm. you know you were, um, where else would you be going? <laughs> Um, and of course, there's, there's you know all, all these different parts of the city that you could go to through different ways. So y it was actually quite rare to see a sign for New York. Now, now you do see a, a few more of them. Mm. Mm. One yeah. thing that's not in this book compared to the, is, is much about what you're actually doing technically. I mean, that that, that was there in in, in Skyferry, um, and, and and this is about the destination rather than the route to, to get there, other than when you're looking out over those cities as you fly as you fly. High above. I, I, I perhaps just a couple of quick questions. I'm sure there will be some one or two av geeks <laughs> here today. Um, you were flying the 747. What, what plane are you now flying? Uh, I now fly the 787. Now, when that was launched, that was very much marketed as the, the Dreamliner, which seemed to be a sort of incredibly romantic, old-fashioned kind of way of, of talking about a plane, a plane of dreams. Yeah, I think they were very keen to market it as a, as a kind of return to a, to a, a previous generation of of flying in the sense that you know the windows were larger, so you could you could see more. I think they're they're quite a bit larger than on on uh, other aircraft, um, and you know more spacious in, in some ways inside. And so I think that was the that was the, the goal of the of its designers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Skyfaring was such a which 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 is available in the bookshop by the way. Is if you haven't read it, is is 
such a, 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 love, a love song, a hymn of praise, a veneration of the, the 747, the, the jumbo jet. Did you feel at all disloyal? When you, <laughs> when you were upgraded and, and, and took seniority and swapped planes. Well, e even, even, the, even upgraded is a charge <laughs> for switching between them. Um, yeah, I mean, the 747 was the plane that I, you know, every, you know, so many kids dream of flying. Um, it was the, all my 747 models were the ones I loved best. Uh, one of the pilots on my original training course, she didn't want to become a pilot. She wanted to become a 747 pilot. It was that explicit even as a child for her. Um, so yeah, it, it, it is an amazing plane. It's um, you know, it's the one that if somebody mentions an airplane in a song, even now they mention the 747. Mm. Um, you don't hear many songs about the A320 or 720. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, it has this enormous cultural presence. I think Norman Foster called it his favorite building of the 20th century. Um, and uh, you know, that that iconic um, yeah, that iconic position is is you know forever associated with with the democratization of travel and yeah. and that you know that age of, of from the 60s on yeah. yeah i think one of the most heartbreaking moments for me of uh, of of the, the the summer the second summer of of, of lockdown was going to uh, uh, an airport in uh, staying with some friends in gloucestershire and we were driving to to go to actually go to a very good bookshop and we drove past kemble airfield which is a, a an airport in gloucestershire where they they junk planes and there was a lineup of of i think seven or eight British Airways, Boeing 747s parked nose to tail. They'd had their engines ripped off. They were never going to fly again. And, and I just, I couldn't help thinking of the, the pilots who, who would have flown them from Heathrow on their, on their final flight, knowing that once the engines were switched off, these great creatures of the sky were, were stuck on the ground in a sort of grave forever. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very poignant um, sight, I can imagine. I, 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 I saw them at Hatton Cross before they were flown away. Just just uh, east of Heathrow, there was um, a whole line of 747 tails, and you know they looked like sails. I mean, they looked like s they looked like ships. Um, mm. um, and to think that they were not going to fly again, or only going to fly once, was a very sad thing. Mm. I do have a little piece of a 747, um, a little bit of an instrument panel, um, which I, I had to buy online. I, they didn't give us extra, you know. But, <laughs> um, but um, it's a little bit of an of the instrument panel, and uh, so that's on my shelf at home, and uh, it's amazing to think of, of its life. I mean, it's to think of, of 20 years of flying around the world and to suddenly land on a shelf, and uh, yeah. it's, it's quite a, uh, it's, yeah, if you attach symbolism to objects or try to think of the history of objects, there's, doesn't get much grander than that if you, yeah. if you love flying. Yeah. Let's open the floor up to, to, uh, to questions um, about, uh, about Imagine the City, or, or you might want to talk about skyfaring or uh, ask other questions of, uh, of Mark. Who would like to Hang on, let, we'll get a microphone for you so we can all, uh, I just got mine, I don't know where it's going. So we can all hear. Just that, yeah. Um, can I ask, do, do your literary activities get in the way of your technical activities? So like, <laughs> like if you're landing a plane, do you think, how on earth do I describe this? <laughs> um, no, no, they, um, I, one of the nice things about the combination of the two is that they, um, you know, they use really different parts of the brain, um, and um, one of the uh, one of the you know the joys of, of that is is just being able to switch one off and do the other. Um, sometimes I'd, ha I'd have a, a complicated meeting with an editor about you know they would say oh cut this chapter or rewrite this chapter and you know and I could say okay I'll deal with that later and I would you know close the laptop and then the next morning I would go to work and 
and be in that very technical world where everything is driven by rules and checklists. Um, and then maybe I would, um, a few days later, I'd be in a cafe in, in Chennai or Los Angeles or something, and I could, I could, I could open up the laptop and look at the editor's email again. <laughs> I think it's a nice, it's, it's, um, it's a nice balance. And many of my colleagues, are, I'm not, I'm certainly not the only pilot who writes. Many of my colleagues are writing um, uh, all sorts of things. Um, often family histories, especially if they have uh, great, you know, grandparents who were uh, in World War II. Um, that's, uh, and they want to get those family stories down. Um, some are writing fiction. Um, so it's, uh, I'm not the only one to find it a nice balance. And other two separate laptops, one with charts and, and things on it <laughs> and one with the book? Or? No, no, it's just, just the one. Just the <laughs> laptop, yeah. We don't actually use a laptop at work. Uh, we, have, we, have an I, we have an iPad, which is, which is really? for charts, yeah, yeah, but no laptops. And no paper anymore? No, the paper's gone. Yeah, yeah, it's all gone. Yeah. Yeah. Another question? Yes, one there, and then we've got one over there next. So we'll come to the lady here. Uh, Hi, in Skyfaring you talk about place lag, which in case anyone here hasn't read it, I'll, I'll let you explain. But I wonder, does your writing help you to manage that sense of place lag? Um, so that's a good, qu good question. Um, so place lag um, was, was sort of my, my term for that feeling when, um, when you're, you know, you're looking in into the, you know, you're in traffic in Cape Town and suddenly you're aware that you're, you're in a city which is foreign to you completely and, and yet yesterday you were getting a coffee at Paddington and, um, or you went for a run in a park in London and suddenly you're on the far side of the world. And, and I, I compare it to jet lag in the sense that, um, you know, jet lag results from our bodies not being able to, to, to cross time zones as easily as airplanes can. And perhaps our, our deep sense of place can't, can't do that either. Um, you know, historically, you know, when we were evolving as a species, we, if, we, if we traveled somewhere, we saw everywhere between A and B. You know, we saw if we were traveling across a savanna or through a forest, we would have seen everything in between. We would have um, taken days or months to do it. Um, and now we can cross distances that are, um, you know, much faster. And, and uh, especially if you're a passenger and you're sleeping, you're not going to see much of, of what's between those two places. And then you land in a city or, uh, and, you're, and you're confronted with, with everything about it, um, about, its, about its life that was going on uh, and would be still be going on if you hadn't come. Um, and so I, I think that's kind of an interesting feeling. And, and just like with jet lag, there's nothing to do about it. So you might as well um, you know, try to enjoy place lag. And it's a, I find it's a good way to remember how extraordinary it is to be able to travel in this mm. way. Um, in terms of writing, um, I did, you know, sometimes, sometimes I would go for a long walk in the city with my laptop um, and then end up at a cafe and start working on something that was related to the book and perhaps related to another city um, than the one I was in. <laughs> uh, and then suddenly I would, I would close my laptop and, and, and almost weirdly forget which city I was in. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not sure it helps with place lag, but it does, it does make it more vivid. And then there's hotels. I mean, you're staying in, you know, airlines look after their, their crews. There's guy, nice hotels, but quite formulaic hotels, I suspect, quite often. So you could wake up thinking, you know, where, where am I? What continent am I in? As you look over to, to the same duvets, the same products in the bathroom, the same all that. Yeah, yeah. It can, um, yeah, they do, they can run together. Yeah. Um, do you have a tip for jet lag? How does a, how does a pilot co combat jet lag? Well, I guess my most useful tip is if I land before 10 a.m., I'll go for a sleep. Um, if I land somewhere after 10 a.m., I'll normally stay up until, until a local bedtime. Mm. Um, and then nobody wants to hear it, but exercise. 
Um, <laughs> coffee. Obviously. Coffee, yeah. But if you go for a run or for a swim, I find that's, you know, being outdoors obviously helps, especially if you're trying to, to, uh, to be awake um, during a local day. Yeah. Yeah, question over, over there, yeah. Uh, Mark, you referred a few moments ago to uh, your iPad and the rules and the checklists and everything else that you have to do before landing, taking off, etc., etc. When you're pedestrian in a city, are you a rule breaker? Do you jaywalk? Do you cross where the lights aren't? Or <laughs> are you very obedient? That's a great question. Um, you know, it depends on um, it depends on where you are. Um, uh, you know, in the on the east coast of the U.S., for example, um, if where I'm, I'm often for work, even though I'm actually from there, um, people tend to to, uh, uh, to cross against the light uh, without without even thinking about it. Um, in uh, a lot of west coast cities in the U.S. and certainly in a lot of Canadian cities, um, there is a lot. You, you know, people wait for the light. They wait for the green man. And sometimes uh, I start to think, well, I'm just going to go for it. Um, and then there. Uh, you know, in Beijing, for example, um, when you're, y you know, there's seven or eight cameras pointing right at you, um, <laughs> and you're an obvious foreigner, um, then I tend to wait for the green man. <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. Yes. Thank you. Um, Mark, from your flight deck, you've traveled over many, many thousand miles, obviously. Is there a memory that will stay with you? like flying over Antarctica, flying over Death Valley, um, flying over parts of Africa. What, you know, what is, what is the memory you'll hold? Because, I mean, I've flown in some places, and you, you look out of the window and you can see things below, and it's, it, you know, it impresses you. So I just wondered, Great Wall of China, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's a, a, a good question in the sense that it's a very challenging question. Um, you can have multiple answers. Yeah, it's... Um, you know, I mean, I mean, city, cities at night are are a really special thing. I think the way they look um, simultaneously futuristic and organic, um, they look like something um, that's grown, which they have in a, in a in an organic way, and yet they also look quite high tech um, and and futuristic and and almost like something out of a science fiction film. Sometimes, um, if you fly into Los Angeles at night, it it looks like um, an image of the of the future in some ways. But maybe in the same way that this book ended up being quite personal, I, I think the places that I fly over that I have a, um, a personal connection to are, are the ones that mean the most to me, especially perhaps if I haven't been to them on the ground. Um, my father lived in, um, in, when he lived in the Congo, he lived um, uh, in a city called, which is now called Kinshasa. Uh, and I fly over it all the time. And uh, I've never been there. I only have his stories from it. Um, and so I look down on these lights and, and I see, and I, you know, what I see is my memories of my father's stories. Um, and of course, what it actually is, is a city of 15 million people that's been going on, you know, and having its own life. Um, it's 15 millions of lives. Um, and that, that juxtaposition is, is uh, um, you know, jarring and, and wonderful and uh, the kind of thing that I remember most vividly, maybe. Um, cellists have nightmares in which they go on stage and their music is blank. Novelists have nightmares in which they come up onto a festival stage and find they haven't actually written the novel. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do pilots have nightmares about? 
apart from the obvious, because my mother-in-law is terrified of flying and she's sitting in front of me. <laughs> um, well, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know if I have any pilot-specific um, pilot nightmares. I mean, I, I do. That's quite reassuring, I think, yeah. as, as passengers. <laughs> Um, you know, um, on, on long-haul aircraft, there are, um, you know, there are bunks, there are bedrooms um, that we go into. Um, if there's three or four pilots, then two of us, one or two of us will be sleeping, which is how you're able to do these very long flights. Um, and, um, you know, that, that space, uh, especially on the 747, more than the 787, it was, you know, it's completely dark. It's, it's actually a requirement that it be dark because the regulator um, says for it to be the highest class of rest area for us. It has to, we have to be able to control the lighting and the temperature and it has to be free from, you know, passengers walking through obviously and that kind of thing. So um, you sleep incredibly deeply there. Um, and when you wake up, there is a moment where you're like, oh yeah, I became a pilot. <laughs> and you kind of reconstruct the last uh, 40 years in, 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 in five or 10 seconds. Um, I think, um, you know, most pilots love their job and, um, uh, of course, uh, if you have a medical, there are medical situations you can get, um, which would require your, you know, which would mean the end of your career. So I think a lot of pilots have, uh, you know, that's obviously not anything anybody ever wants. Um, and so if you, you know, and they can be things that are, that would, that, that are manageable in day-to-day -day life if you're not a pilot, and yet they can nevertheless mean the end of your, of your flying career. So that's something that, that I think, uh, you know, nobody wants to happen, especially if you love your job. And you still obviously do. I mean, that you know, you, you, you talk about being in particular most trying lessons, and the, you know, obviously you can imagine the excitement of taking off for the first time. That clearly hasn't left you all these all these years on. No, not at all. No. No. Mr. Helen went up. cities that you've visited over the years has changed the most, both in terms of uh, the sort of geography of the city and culturally? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, the city that's the city whose skyline has changed the most is, um, I think, is Miami. Uh, uh, they are just building skyscrapers at the rate of one day, I think. And, <coughs> and so when the, I flew there maybe three or four years ago, and I hadn't flown there for several years before that, and it it seemed almost un unrecognizable to me. Um, but a, maybe a more interesting example is, is Delhi. So when I first started flying to Delhi, uh, which has a, a very important role in the book, um, you couldn't really move around the city on public transport unless you, were, unless you had a local guide. Um, it, it's an extremely large, extremely crowded um, city, which is you know, not for the faint-hearted who've just, you know, just landed. Um, but over the last 20 years, they've built an amazing metro system there. Um, and the metro, and I've never, I've never had that experience before of, of going to a city that didn't have one and had only a small one, to then going to a city which has a quite a good one, and it's, I find it just completely liberating as a traveler to think that you know you can pick anywhere in the city and know that you'll be able to get there by following this map, and that when you're tired and you want to come home, you can you can do the reverse. You just look on your phone or, or on a street map of the nearest station, and once you step into that station, you can get back to your hotel. And um, maybe that makes me a slightly less adventurous traveler than I'd like to be, but um, I find that that, that freedom of, of a good metro system is, makes me much more willing to go to, just to, just to explore, um, and uh, maybe much more appreciative of, of public transport. 
And have you got plans for Delhi next week? I mean, that's an amazing thought you'll be there. Yeah, um, I don't know what I'll do. I'll probably, ha I'll probably walk in, maybe we'll be cooling down a bit, and, um, and then, then I'll have some coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Think about the next book. What are you going to do next? I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't have any immediate plans for a book, but I'm open to suggestions. So. Um. Well, this is a cracking one, which will uh, take you on a, on a wonderful journey and, and, and raises a huge number of, of questions and, and thoughts to ponder. I hope that you will, you will enjoy it. Mark's going to go to uh, the bookshop now and will be available to sign copies. Uh, thank you very much. Mark Van Honecker. Thank you. Thank you.